Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It's Friday. That means it's time for a new episode of Outkick the Culture. I'm Jason Martin, your host. You can follow me on Twitter at jmartoutkick. Man, I'll tell you, the responses and just all of the stuff that you guys have done over the past four weeks as we've gotten this thing underway has really been overwhelming. Really kind words, some really nice reviews. If you have not left a review and you're digging it, really would appreciate if you went to iTunes and dropped a star rating and said what you liked or didn't like about the show. Uh, So many DMs coming in, Twitter, ideas, questions. I've got a fantastic question today that came from an email actually that I just got last night and it actually changed my plans because I was going to go with something else and then this came through and I really want to hit it and it's about scores and musicians in rankings actually ranking musicians in film and television and I think you're really going to dig that we got a lot to get to today we are going to talk a little bit about Game of Thrones maybe not a ton but we will talk somewhat about it in more of a larger scope about the way I felt about Sunday's episode as opposed to all the little specifics that were going on within that episode we'll talk we're also going to talk a little bit about ballers which came back last week and how it compares to entourage entourage which celebrated I think it was its 10 year anniversary but that may be actually off it may be its 15 year anniversary it was an anniversary last week mad men had an anniversary 10 years ago last week it premiered it was a thursday uh you may have seen that tweet it actually ended up becoming a moment on twitter my tweet did and kind of blew up so you may have seen that but last thursday was the 10-year anniversary of the first episode of mad men and i said that television changed for the better on that day and then people said hey it changed for the better whatever 15 years ago whatever it was the day before because that was when entourage began I don't fully agree with that. I did for the first couple of years, but Ballers coming back and its comparisons to Entourage is something worth exploring. Also, I'm going to give you a plea about a show that I want you to go and watch, a show that has not been on this year, that ended last year, but one that I absolutely stand behind as strongly as just about anything, and so many people never tried it, never watched it, assumed because of where it was, that it probably was not going to be very good, and I think it's one of the best television shows of the decade, and it urges, it's something that that I absolutely urge you to watch, so we're going to get into that as well, so there's a tease for you. Uh, But we're going to start somewhere interesting. This show actually hit Netflix a couple of weeks ago. It was the week before Ozark, which we talked about last week, and I definitely got my share of disagreement. I have some friends that just think Ozark's the greatest thing they've ever seen, And then there are some people that said, I crystallized and said exactly what they believed. And that's what this show is. Sometimes you're going to agree with me, sometimes you're not. What I hope is, if you're passionate one way or the other, you're going to tell me whether or not you are, I'm dead on and you just want to sing my praises or I'm completely wrong. Because I'd love to hear it because you might change my mind. You never know. I doubt it, but at least I'm going to take you into consideration every time. But we're going to start with a show that, you know, I was excited about watching it. And then I had some critic friends that told me, yeah, no, don't be excited about it because they got advanced viewings. I actually did too, but I never had a chance to actually sit down and watch it. I pushed it down my list. There are a few people in this world that when they tell me they like something, it does matter to me in my personal life. And one of those people told me this and said, you know, she really, really dug this show. So I wanted to go and watch it and and speak to it. And there were other people actually on Twitter asking my opinion on it as well. Actually, several So it does make sense to talk about it here so that we can get it out in the open. And that show is Friends from College, which is a Netflix show starring Keegan-Michael Key and some other folks, and we're going to talk about them here in just a second. Friends from College is a show that should work. Keegan-Michael Key, very likable, extremely talented, extremely versatile performer. Nat Faxon, Fred Savage, Annie Parisi, J. Sue Park, There are a lot of people on this show. Kobe Smulders, obviously, who you may remember from How I Met Your Mother or the Avengers series. 
a lot of likable people, a lot of veteran people that have done a lot. Nat Faxon has not, he's not a name you're going to know, but when you see him, you've seen him before. He was in Ben and Kate, which was a show that should have made it on Fox, but did not. Was canceled one season in, actually never even aired the last few episodes. And Dakota Johnson, who was the star opposite Nat Faxon, of course, went on to do the Fifty Shades series. So her career, I guess it got better monetarily, but certainly not from a creative standpoint. Fred Savage is an interesting case because the Wonder Years was obviously one of the more seminal programs of at least people my age growing up. We watched it in middle school and we watched it early in high school. And we remember when Kevin Arnold's father died and we found out about it in that finale where Daniel Stern was kind of telling us what happened later in life. And we got to know some people on that show, Jason Hervey and Dan Loria, who really broke out onto the scene as a result of that show. Olivia Diabo, another example there. But Fred Savage, since that point, has kind of been the Hindenburg when it comes to acting. Not because he's not good, but because when you see him, you can't not see Kevin Arnold. And it really is that way. And you know what? It's actually kind of the same for Ben Savage now. Nothing Ben Savage has done since Boy Meets World has really worked. And when you see Ben Savage, that's all you see, even though he's an adult now. Topanga still looks like Topanga, Daniel Fischel. But it still works for Daniel Fischel. She looks like an older version of Topanga. Ben Savage, still, you can see a 12-year-old in him. Fred Savage looks like a man-child. His projects have not been that bad. Working was not a bad show on NBC. Didn't make it. Did not make it at all. But it was a funny show, and USA ran it in syndication after Wings for a while uh, on weekday mornings. He did The Grinder a couple of years ago with Rob Lowe. I thought that show was fabulous. I tremendously enjoyed my time watching The Grinder and was sad when it was canceled. But it was canceled. One season yet again. I don't think it's streaming anywhere. Hopefully that will change. It's a really, really funny show. And Fred Savage was very good on it. And now here's Friends with College, or Friends from College. And he plays Max Adler, a gay man who is in a relationship, or at least part of the time, in a relationship with Billy Eichner, who's another name in Friends from College that you should like. Now, Billy Eichner is kind of Ken Jong and Rebel Wilson to me. I've made that point before on this podcast, not about him, but about them. He's better in doses, but here's the thing about Billy Eichner. When Billy Eichner is not on 100, when he's just kind of a normal person, he's really good. And I mean as a talented actor. He's just very good. He still plays a gay man in this show, but he plays a measured gay man. He, he plays a doctor, and he's not like, I'm Billy Eichner! And that's kind of the Billy Eichner thing. His shtick is not something I've ever really liked. But when Billy Eichner is just a human being, and just somebody that's acting and playing a role, he's really good. And you can take the I'm Billy Eichner for a little while. He worked in Parks and Rec, for example. But in general, he can be a lot to take, just like a Ken Jong and just like a Rebel Wilson. Ken Jong, I like to take in small doses. Rebel Wilson, I'd like to take in no doses. And Billy Eichner, I can take in small doses. And in this role, or in this kind of performance, I can take a lot of Billy Eichner. But Friends from College has a couple of problems. One, it's not particularly fun to watch. That was the same story I had with Ozark last week. But let me explain why. There's only so much unlikability that you can tolerate in a comedy. These people are all jerks for the most part. Keegan-Michael Key, Ethan Turner is his name on the show. We find out within five minutes he's cheating on his wife. Max Adler ends up taking cocaine within the first three episodes. He's not a total jerk, but he is somebody that needs constant affection and needs positive reinforcement and all of these kinds of things. Nick, who's Nat Faxon's character, ends up in an affair as well with another one of the prime characters on the show. Annie Parisi might be the most likable, and she plays Sam, and she's the one that we find out in the first scene is having an affair with Keegan-Michael Key. And they're all friends from college, which, of course, would make sense based on the name of the show. And Parisi's really good, and she plays more of a human character where both sides actually match. It just sort of works. And Keegan does to some extent, too, but Parisi is more believable here. And then you've got J. Sue Park that plays Marianne. Her character's just a little bit too far for me, over the top with the dinner theater and the the plays and all of those things. And I know a lot of you that are listening to this have not seen the show, but those of you that, that have, you understand where I'm at here. And Kobe Smulders is Keegan-Michael Key's wife. So, we've got names that you recognize. Maybe not all of them, but names that you recognize. Some that are up-and-coming stars, some that have already 
kind of past their prime and some that are trying to recapture some things. But even though I thought that the pilot in particular worked out pretty well, relatively quickly, this show became a problem. One of the problems is I think they cast it wrong. And that doesn't mean that they got the acting wrong, like they picked the wrong actors. They may have all the right actors, but they put them in the wrong spots. Or in one case, they did. I'm going to make a suggestion to those of you that have seen the show. I just want you to think about this for a second. If you took Keegan-Michael Key and Fred Savage and flipped their characters, I think that the show would be 10 times better. And here's why. Keegan-Michael Key is infinitely likable. Wide smile, wide eyes, very animated. The improv background shines through every time that you see this guy. You like him. You laugh at this guy. Within five minutes, he's having an affair. And he's a struggling author. And none of what he's doing really adds up. But another thing Keegan-Michael Key can do, and you've seen this in a couple of his smaller roles in films, is he can play a, gr- he can play a great asshole. So take Keegan-Michael Key and make him the book executive and have him sitting on the other side of the table from Fred Savage, who's the struggling author that's cheating on his girlfriend slash fiance slash wife. Keegan-Michael Key also can play gay really effectively. Again, from the improv background and somebody being that animated, I could have seen that more believably. But Fred Savage also, when you just look at him, there's a sneaky kind of underhandedness and a real deadpan way that he tries to play things. And it's kind of the same act in everything he does at this point. Where I could actually see Fred Savage cheating on Kobe Smulders. I think he'd be a fool for it, but I think he could do it. Now, the one issue I have with this decision that I just made to switch those two actors is that Annie Parisi has great chemistry with Keegan-Michael Key. And I think that the real story of this entire show is designed to be Sam and Ethan together. And when they're together, they are very good. Those scenes are good. You can see the affection in those moments. You can see the love in those moments. But Outside of those scenes, I think that they're wrong. I think they're backwards. I think Keegan-Michael Key should be in Fred's spot, and Fred should be in Keegan's spot. And I think it makes a better show if you do that. Second problem with Friends from College. Too long. Comedies, in most cases, less is going to be more. And that, that will be a refrain you'll hear on this show many times from me. I used to be the guy that wanted the four-hour epic. Then I saw Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. Four hours is tough to pull off. That's why I said Dunkirk was so great last week, because 108 minutes is exactly what that film needed to be. And Chris Nolan has been a guy that in the past has gone too long for some taste. I'm such a Nolan fan, I can forgive it anytime he does it. And in most cases, I'm just happy to continue to see more of the stuff. But Dunkirk was just as long as it needed to be. I will tell you that if Friends from College, if the episodes had averaged 22 minutes instead of somewhere between 30 and 34 in some cases, you'd have a better show. They have to go so much further. And by the time you get to the end of the episode, you're exhausted by it. Not only are you exhausted and tired by it, you've just had enough. Like, for example, the third episode of the season featured the A Beautiful Mind moment where Billy Eichner had surgery at 7 a.m. as a doctor, and you had Max and Ethan together trying to come up with an idea for Ethan's new book. And they invited some other folks over, and they ended up drinking too much and taking cocaine and they throw a pizza against the wall and time how long it's there as part of a bet and there were some moments scattered throughout this very very overly long scene that were very funny like keegan michael key's character saying i wrote vagina seven times there was some very very good stuff here but it was too much and they didn't need it there was another example later in the season when they're on a party bus going to various vineyards in on the East Coast and the Upper East Side, which are pretty much terrible vineyards, it's just way too long. If you take eight minutes out of that, it's so much better. And here's the thing. 
yes, if this were on regular network TV or even FX, these episodes would not be quite this long. Netflix enables you to go longer. But I think that sometimes these Netflix shows don't always need to take advantage of what Netflix gives them. Same thing is true with the Marvel shows. Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage. Iron Fist didn't need one episode based on how shady that first season was. And we're gonna we're about to see the same thing with the Defenders, which I'll be talking about here in the next couple of weeks as I'm going to be screening that. Here, I might even start this weekend. Those things go 13 episodes each. They shouldn't. They need to go 10. There doesn't need to be some kind of set level for how many episodes need to exist. Glow did not go 10 episodes. And look, Friends from College only went 8, but the episodes were too long. And the content was not anywhere near as good as Glow. But the larger issue is, when you watch Friends from College, you compare it to these other late 20s, early 30-year-old romance shows. And usually there are multiple couples on each show. Friends was kind of the godfather of this, with the three guys and the three girls. And then you had, you know, offshoots like two guys, a girl, and a pizza place, or two girls, a guy, and a pizza place, or whatever it might be. And then you had other stuff like Happy Endings, David Caspi's show, which was absolutely hilarious and made it three seasons on ABC, and then there was talk maybe somebody was going to revive it and it never happened. That was a cast with Eliza Coop, Elijah Cuthbert, Zachary Knight, and Adam Pally, Damon Wayans Jr., and Casey Wilson, where everybody, look, at times they were all unlikable as well, but there was something to grasp onto when the episodes weren't too long, and it was just flat funny. And here's a show no one talks about that actually, when you look at the talent on the show, it's kind of amazing. And it's Traffic Light, and I believe it's still available on Netflix. And it was a one-season-and-out show for Fox. Boy, Fox really likes to burn off some stuff that I think is off, that is good. David Denman, who you remember from The Office, Pam's original boyfriend before Jim Halpert. Nelson Franklin, who you're now watching on Veep being emasculated by Roger Furlong on a regular basis. Chris Marshall, who you probably don't know as well, but was very good in that show. Liza Lapira, who you have seen in stuff, but you wouldn't necessarily know her name. And then there's Aya Cash, and Aya Cash has gone on to do another show that is another kind of romance show on FX that is all about unlikable people, but somehow you end up rooting for all of them, and that show, which happens to be entitled You're the Worst, is one of the best such shows ever. You're the Worst is a show that goes too far routinely, but it clicks in a way Friends from College doesn't. And if you like something like Friends from College, my God, please watch You're the Worst. You're the Worst, which I've written about for the last couple of years at Outkick.com, is a fabulous show where you've got Chris Gear and Aya Cash in the leads. You've got Desmond Borges, who is just fantastic. Kether Donahue is one of the great pricks we've ever seen on a show like this. And Alan McLeod as Paul Jillian, utterly hilarious. I mean, you're the worst. It's cringeworthy when it comes to unlikability and people doing bad stuff. But God, it is hilarious and so well done. And there's heart behind it somehow. And you care about it. And it goes into depression and all of these other kinds of issues. And I'm not going to sing its praises anymore, but you're the worst is a show you should watch. Traffic Light, which is where Aya Cash came from. Of course, she's done many other things, but those are the two things that kind of ring true in this particular discussion. Traffic Light is something you can binge in a day and a half if you just want to do it on a weekend on Netflix. I think you'll enjoy it. Happy Endings. I'm not exactly sure where it exists now. It may be on Hulu, but you need to find it. Another great one of those romance-ish kind of shows, but with a lot of intelligence. Now, here's the thing. I didn't hate Friends from College by any means. I didn't hate it nearly as much as most critics did. So I, I did not exactly disagree with this person that her opinion convinced me to watch the show i didn't like it as much as she did but i think that with a couple of changes there's a good show here i'm not sure that we've actually seen that show yet when it comes to the end of the season i was just kind of like okay i mean that's enough of that for now i hope that they learned a few lessons and they're able to come back and nick stoller and the rest of the crew are able to really write something solid for the follow-up because there is some talent to be found on this show 
there's a lot of things that you can look at that are positives about friends from college. But when you look at the talent involved, you also have to think, ah, it's a little bit disappointing. It could have been better. And I think that the first thing is just because you have the real estate doesn't mean you have to build on every acre. Leave some grass out there. 24 minute episode, so much better. You don't have to fill it. And every episode, another thing that the show continually did, not necessarily from the pilot, but at least from episode three on, is it continued to escalate its levels of over the topness as it would go through the episode. By the time you got to the end, you're just like, oh my God, what else can happen? And then it ends. But it just keeps ramping up. And it does so in a way that feels very artificial. In the, in the same way, actually, I think as, as Ozark did. Where if Ozark had slowed down and spaced out its moments better, it would have been a better show. I think Friends from College maybe suffers from the same thing. And that's a Netflix deal. Where you're given the real estate and you, you, know, you can write these episodes as long as you want. And you can do what you feel like you need to do. But I think Friends from College is a show that actually, I'm not going to use Outkick, it's coverage. But it just overshot itself just a little bit. And as a result, a show that maybe could have been an easy B plus with the level of talent involved is somewhere around a C plus, somewhere in there. It's not bad. You could certainly do worse. It's just not the show that I think most of us expected it to be. So there are my thoughts on Friends from College. Again, let me tell you, Traffic Light, a show to watch. Happy Endings is a show to watch. Another show that I did not mention, Lennon Parham and Jessica St. Clair's show that just came to an end on USA, Playing House. Playing House also has Keegan-Michael Key in it. It's also got Zach Woods, who's the best improv comic in the world. You know him from Silicon Valley. You remember him from The Office. Incidentally, what he did in The Office is the only time I've ever not liked Zach Woods. And that was towards the end of The Office when they started writing a bunch of asshole characters constantly. But you're seeing a lot there. Playing House is a heartwarming but funny show where a lot of stuff is off script. They have a ton of fun. And that factor is what's absent from Friends from College. And I'm hoping that they get that right in the second season. But if you want my advice, if you liked Friends from College... You're the worst is the top of your list. I mean, you need to watch it today. If you really liked Friends from College, you need to watch You're the Worst right now. Like, just turn off this podcast and go find You're the Worst and start watching it. Because you're absolutely going to love it. And you're going to be like, man, I thought Friends from College was good. Holy crap, is this a great show. Because it is. It's a top five comedy in my outkick list both of the last two years. Traffic Light, traffic light like I mentioned, Happy Endings playing house and then of course you've got your how i met your mothers your friends and all that stuff but i'm trying to go with things that i don't think you've seen that would still fit this bill so i'll give friends from college you know i'm not going to give it a c plus i'll give it a c i'm not going to give it the plus it is very average and at times i just feel like it's too much and i'm telling you you replace keegan michael key and flip him with fred savage i think you've got a show with a lot more balance on it something to think about at least Next, Ballers versus Entourage. Ballers is a show I'm not caught up on, first of all. I'm just kind of watching it now. I screened it originally, not the entire season, but the first four episodes for HBO uh, a couple of weeks before it debuted. I thought it was okay. I kind of saw what it was. The Rock's really charming and good at what he does. But I wasn't totally hooked. So I've gone back this week and started binging it. I'll finish it by the end of the weekend, and I'll probably be caught up in time to watch Sunday night's episode. I like Ballers. Ballers is great throwaway entertainment, and man, do we need that. Unlike Friends from College, which is a red show of all red shows for a comedy, Ballers is fun to watch. Ballers has got great-looking women everywhere. Of course, if you're a woman listening to this podcast, got great-looking dudes everywhere. There's loud music. There's action to it in terms of the football side of things. There are stories about celebrity and fame and money and all of those things. Power. Father time winning every battle. It's very similar to Entourage. And I think that was a comparison originally, and it makes sense because closest to the whole productions did both shows, and Steven Levinson is associated with both shows. The Rock is Ari Gold. 
you could say, you know, they're not perfect comparisons, although I think that one is pretty damn close. But uh, John David Washington, that's Ricky Jarrett. He's kind of your Vinny Chase. Omar Benson Miller, Charles Green, somebody that's just kind of trying to make his way after a career. You could say that's Johnny Drama, or maybe you could say Vernon Littlefield is uh, is, uh, Drama. Maybe Green is Turtle. Like, there's not a comparison for every character, but if you've got a comparison for Vinny and you've got a comparison for Ari, then you've got a show that's awfully close. Now, Entourage was a show that for the first two years was just absolutely just great. Just a ton of fun to watch. Same thing. Just very, very entertaining. And then they decided to try and make Vinny into a tragic figure or somebody that couldn't get out of his own way. And then they started to focus on the side characters all becoming stars in their own right. And the only thing that was consistently good from moment one to moment last on Entourage was Ari Gold. Jeremy Piven was just born to play that role. Whatever you want to say about Piven, you're entitled to say. But the Ari Gold character was why I still wanted to watch Entourage late in the run. And Perry Reese as well, for obvious reasons. But... Here in Ballers, I think you've got more. Like, you've got some athletes dealing with excess and making mistakes. It's something we can all relate to. And, of course, me being in the sports industry, the sports media industry, I can relate to that, similar to the way I could in Entourage in terms of the pop culture side and the Hollywood side. But you have to have a lead that you like in most of these kinds of shows. They're not going to be blue shows. If you missed the second episode of the podcast, I went into red versus blue shows and my philosophy on television. But you can't be a blue show if you don't like the lead. So The Rock is really likable. Spencer Strasmore is really likable as a character. And of course he's dynamic and he's photogenic and he's got all those things going for him. And he just kind of oozes what you want somebody to ooze in that role. So Ballers is, is honestly pretty good. I think it's probably got more legs than Entourage simply because Entourage went off a cliff too fast. They just should have slowed that thing down, given us a little bit more fun with Vinny where he succeeded before Medellin and all of those kinds of things. I thought that the Entourage movie was a great piece of fan service. A lot of people thought it was a terrible film. I think they're wrong because I don't think it was intended to be a great film. I think it was intended to be a closing moment where the fans of the show and the people that had ridden with these guys as long as we all had, if we stuck with it from start to finish got to see them all sort of end positively. Vinny doing well. Ari, of course, doing well by the end of the movie. They go through their final trials and tribulations, and then they come out on the other side. But those years that led to that contained some just awful television, some terrible storylines, some stuff that made no sense. And when Jerry Ferrara, who I like, but when Turtle became almost the most important character on the show, and we're talking about his tequila business and him banging Jamie Lynn Sigler and all of these kinds of things. That is when Entourage really went off the rails. And there was only so much Kevin Conley and Emmanuel Chickory I could take of them being off and on and E being who he ended up becoming. But the movie was the fan service that needed to end a show like that because that show is supposed to have a happy ending. I think Ballers is too. We're not talking about playmakers here where the entire point was basically to act like every NFL player is smoking crack out of aluminum foil in the bathroom at halftime. Ballers has got, you know, fights and all that kind of stuff. But there are some legitimately funny things. Rob Cordry's very good on that show. Really, everybody is awfully good on that show. I think Omar Miller's really good. I think Donovan Carter is really good. I think Jasmine Simon is really good. Ariel Kebble, another, like, there's there's a lot of people to like on that show. There really are. Even Richard Schiff. If you watch the West Wing, the weirdest thing when I when I turned on Ballers and went back to it is that Richard Schiff and T- Toby Ziegler is on Ballers. I can't imagine Toby Ziegler ever even watching an NFL game based on the Toby Ziegler we saw in the West Wing for such a long time. But Richard Schiff's great. Dulé Hill. Another guy, actually, from the West Wing, interestingly enough. And, of course, Psych and other things. But Ballers is a solid show. Ballers Ballers is a solid show for what it is trying to be. It's not Game of Thrones. It's not Lost. It's not The Leftovers. It's not Justified 
or Breaking Bad or Mad Men or Friday Night Lights or anything like that. Ballers is supposed to entertain you and give you something light to end your week. It's perfect because Game of Thrones is such a heavy show most of the time. As soon as it ends, let's go to Ballers, lighten it up a little bit, you can laugh a bit, and then if you want to stick around for some politics, there's John Oliver and there's your night. So where it fits and where it slots into things, it works. The same thing is true of Entourage as well, which used to follow up dramas. It's a nice balancing act that HBO generally pulls on Sunday nights when they don't go drama-drama. That's something I think Showtime has always gotten wrong. Showtime goes Homeland into Billions, or it goes Masters of Sex into Ray Donovan. Those are two heavy shows back-to-back. I like the idea of keep me all night long with one drama, a pair of comedies, and then something else, and then repeat those things because you're a premium channel. I don't think we need two or three dramas at the same time. HBO's able to space out its big stuff. Same thing as spacing out your big moments in a show. You don't have to go Game of Thrones, Westworld, Leftovers, back to back to back. No, you got Game of Thrones, and then it ends. You go to 10 episodes of that, and then here comes Westworld back. Or here comes The Deuce, David Simon and Mark Pelicano's new show that premieres in September about the rise of the porn industry. David Simon means you need to pay attention to the deuce, and as soon as it shows up on your DVR, go ahead and set your DVR for it. I'll be reviewing it. I will be screening it, hopefully, within the next month. David Simon, if you don't know, created The Wire. He also helped create and write Homicide Life on the Street, and he created Treme. That's a freaking amazing resume. And now he's doing a show about the porn industry that's got Maggie Gyllenhaal in it, among others. That's probably all I need to say about that. You need to watch that show. But I do think HBO gets it right. Heavy Game of Thrones. And then you get to hang out with The Rock and these athletes and laugh and see some boobs and see some drugs and just kind of end your night on that on that note. I think Ballers may end up being a show that is revered more than Entourage, although I don't think it has the same level of star power. I think that if you look at the top five people on Entourage, Adrian Grenier, Kevin Connolly, Kevin Dillon, Jerry Ferrara, and Jeremy Piven, those are five names you're always going to remember and you're always going to associate with Entourage, despite what else they've done. And all of them have done things, obviously, early in their career. When you talk about ballers, you're really thinking about The Rock and Rob Corddry, probably. Not that these other actors aren't really good. I just don't think you're going to look at them and see them in the same way. And I also don't think you're going to see them in the same way you used to see, you know, Scott Porter or Taylor Kitsch or Zach Guilford, those kind of folks from Friday Night Lights. You're always going to see Matt Saracen. You're always going to see Tim Riggins. You're always going to see Smash. You're always going to see Jason Street. Those characters went double. You're also, every time you see Landry, no matter what he's in, even if he's in a train scene in Breaking Bad, whenever you see Jesse Plemons, you're going to think of Landry. And then you're going to think of Tyra and Adrian Palicki. There are just some shows that do that. I don't think Ballers really necessarily rises to that yet. Maybe it will. Maybe it's just it hasn't been around long enough. The Rock, though, The Rock is a lasting character. And because of his star power, Ballers has a really bright future. And it's still the most watched 30-minute show HBO runs. That includes Veep. That includes Silicon Valley. That includes Vice Principals. That includes all of those shows. Ballers is the one more people watch, including, apparently, Elizabeth Warren. But, you know, who in the world is going to believe anything she says after her Native American turn a few years ago? But I do think Ballers is a show that everybody should start to pay attention to a little bit if they just want to be entertained. Because there's so many shows that are so heavy, it's not bad to have a few on your list that you can just put on any time, shut off your brain, and enjoy. And Entourage kind of had that too, and then it became too heavy late, and it got frustrating. I told you... We had a really good question. We had a question asked in an email that came to me last night. I don't know if the guy wanted me to respond via email or not, but here's where we're going to do it. If I had a movie to score, who would I want to score it? And the two names that he gave me and said, I could pick one of these two, are Ramin Jawadi and Hans Zimmer. I'm going to lay out the case for both. And then you will know who they are because you may not now. Hopefully you know who Hans Zimmer is. You may not know who Ramin Jawadi is, even though you should. Hans Zimmer 
has been Chris Nolan's man of choice for the most part throughout his career. At least his bigger films. Batman Begins, Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises, Inception, Dunkirk, just to name several. He also scored Gladiator, Pirates of the Caribbean series, The Lion King back in 95, which he won an Academy Award for. He's done a lot more than that, but those are just some of the highlights. Hans Zimmer is kind of, he's just kind of become the man. It's like, you know, John Williams was the guy for a while. Sergio Leone was the guy for a while. And John Williams, of course, came back and did The Force Awakens. But Hans Zimmer's kind of the guy. Harry Gregson Williams probably up there on that list as well. And then you've got Ramin Jawadi, who was the other guy that the emailer mentioned. What is Ramin Jawadi doing these days? Ramin Jawadi was tasked with coming up with an appropriate score for a little show that we now call Game of Thrones. Yes, I'm talking about the main theme and every other piece of orchestral work that's ever been in Game of Thrones. That all goes to Ramin Jawadi. That right there puts him near the top of the list. You know it does if you watch Game of Thrones, and I know you do. What else has he done? Well, Westworld. Season 1 wrapped up last year. I wrote every wrote on every episode for Outkick.com. You can go to the archive. Just put in the word Westworld and all the articles I've written will come up. You can read them as you go through the series. The Westworld score was phenomenal. Not just the score, but the stuff on the player piano, which Ramin Jawadi was behind as well. What else has he done? Prison Break on Fox. Another extremely good score there. The Strain on FX, which is Carlton Cuse's show, which is kind of intriguing and not really because Westworld and the show I'm about to mention after The Strain, there are ties there to that extended tree that includes Carlton Cuse and Lindelof and Jonathan Nolan. And actually the same thing is true of Zimmer and it's true of another name I'm about to mention. But before I get there, the other thing Ramin Jawadi did was he scored Person of Interest. And I'm not going to say anything else about Person of Interest because that's a topic coming up as soon as I answer this question. But suffice to say, the fact that he scored Person of Interest should also count for a hell of a lot. So the question was, Hans Zimmer or Ramin Jawadi? It's real interesting because it depends on what kind of film I'm doing, first of all. I might go Ramin right now, even though I really love Hans Zimmer. And he was that Dunkirk score is just incredible. Ramin is kind of the guy right now. He's the bell of the ball. But before we go any further, I'm going to stop and add another name here. It wasn't in the email, but I think that you can't have this discussion without putting in Michael Giacchino. Michael Giacchino, if you don't know him, scored Lost. Which is perhaps the best score I've ever seen in television history, if Game of Thrones isn't. He also did Alias, another J.J. Abrams show. How about Fringe? Yet another one. Star Trek and Star Trek Into Darkness. Yes, J.J. Abrams. He's also been Pixar's musician of choice. Up, Inside Out, The Incredibles, Ratatouille, just to name a few. He scored Zootopia, which I thought was the best animated film of the last few years, along with Inside Out. Super 8. Another Abrams film, Rogue One, yes, Doctor Strange, and the last thing that you've heard from him is he scored Spider-Man Homecoming. But if you want to mention Jawadi and Zimmer, I think you have to mention Giacchino, because that Lost score covers a lot of ground. That Fringe score covers a lot of ground. All those Pixar films, beautiful scores. And that's not all he's done. That's not all any of these guys have done. I'm just giving you some of the highlights of their career. So who would I get it to score? It depends. If it's an animated film, I'm going with Giacchino. If it's a huge, sprawling fantasy epic, I'm probably going with Jawadi. If it is more gritty, but still on a grand scale, I'm probably going Zimmer. It's it's not a cop-out answer. I think right now of the three, Jawadi is the hottest, and he's probably the guy I would want most. But I love them all. It just depends on the kind of film that you're asking me to make as to who would fit it best. But those are the three names 
Ramin Jawadi, Hans Zimmer, Michael Giacchino. Those are guys that if you go to iTunes right now and you decide you want to purchase the Game of Thrones score or you want to purchase the Dark Knight score, which was one of my all-time favorites, or if you want to purchase the Lost score, you should. Instrumental isn't for everybody, but that music, in many of the cases of the examples that I just mentioned from those three guys, is music that's actually emotionally stirring, positive or negative. But, I mean, I have shed tears to Michael Giacchino in Up, in Lost, and at times in Friends, in Fringe. Those are three examples. Jawadi, I've never really cried from a Game of Thrones theme, but I am pumped up by that thing. That is a long entrance to that show. That's almost a minute and a half, minute and 45 seconds. There are a lot of entrances now or intro deals that are five seconds, if that. Lost was an example of that, really. But when the Game of Thrones theme hits, I never fast forward as much as I'd like to have that extra two minutes. I may get up and do something, but I can hear it in the background and I'm humming along to it. It is so recognizable. And I think that maybe that's what puts Jawadi over the top right now. And the person of interest score is the one that you have not heard that you need to hear because it's a show that you have not watched and you need to watch. And that takes us to the person of interest discussion. This is my plea to you today. As purveyors of this medium, as fans of this podcast, as people that respect my opinion in pop culture, there is no show. Maybe with the exception of The Leftovers, but I would suggest that Person of Interest is even higher up on this list than The Leftovers. That I feel has been more overlooked and underappreciated than Person of Interest. This decade and maybe stretching back further. Person of Interest was a show on CBS that ended last summer. It was burned off by CBS. Burned off meaning they got it out in the summer and they were playing two episodes a night. In some cases, they just wanted to get it off the books. They were done with it, but they wanted to let the let Jonathan Nolan and the people behind it end it the way they wanted to end it. Time slot was jerked around. Wasn't advertised particularly well. I would say that it didn't start as hot, but it. I don't think that people just tuned out because of that. I think they thought it was another CSI, an NCIS, that kind of show, and that's not what they wanted from this particular thing. And look, there was a case of the week, a monster of the week, on every every episode of Person of Interest. But the story behind it all, the congruency, the continuation, the serial side of that show, was so fabulous and so deep and so thought-provoking that it didn't matter. And generally, what they were doing from episode to episode would also flow into that larger story. The acting was unbelievable. Michael Emerson, who played Ben Linus on Lost, his wife is Carrie Preston, who was who also appeared in Person of Interest, but you probably remember her better from True Blood, as well as Elsbeth Tassioni on The Good Wife and Now The Good Fight. That's a talented family. And Carrie Preston was more of a screen or more of a stage actress. But she's really translated well to TV. And she is just so... she She's just instant entertainment when she's on screen. Really good in every role she's in. But Emerson's just off the chain great. And then Jim Caviezel, who, look, Passion of the Christ or Deja Vu or whatever you may like him for or not like him for his role as Mr. Reese was pretty much perfect for him. His voice was right. He had the right look, had everything that you wanted. Amy Acker came on at the end of season one as root Amy Acker. That's her star making performance. That's the performance that anytime I see Amy Acker, I'm going to think of person of interest, Sarah Shahi who came on later on in the run, same kind of deal there. Taraji P. Henson, who left and would do on, would do Empire for Fox and play Cookie and win awards for Cookie, was first on Person of Interest. I mean, not to mention other stuff, but she was on Person of Interest as a key major figure in that show as Joss. And... It really helped flesh out the early years of Person of Interest before she left. And her storyline kind of helped the Reese character evolve. 
So why am I telling you to watch Person of Interest? What the hell is Person of Interest about anyway? Well, it's about Emerson's character, Harold Finch, who worked in the government after 9-11 to create a machine that enabled him and the United States to spy on anybody at any time through every camera, through every device in the world. This was a show born out of fear of the Patriot Act and national security overreach and a loss of privacy and what that could what could be done with that information in the wrong hands. And that was really the story of things. And then it kind of went into technology and how these machines work and how they became self-aware and began to fight for their survival in some ways. And the competition between those that wanted to use them for altruistic means and those that wanted to use them to wipe their enemies off the map. There was so much here, but generally it was born out of privacy and and national security. But on top of all of this, the struggle for freedom and independence in this kind of surveillance age, in the wake of 9-11. There's also this deal. One of the first things that I wrote on Tumblr that I guarantee you didn't see was that person of interest is Batman without the capes and without the superhero stuff. The villains were real, the heroes were real, but this was still Batman. John Reese, Caviezel's character, didn't wear a cape, but he brooded a lot. He was unhappy. He was incredibly lonely, socially anxious in many situations, quiet, but had a code, followed that code, did his job. Harold Finch was the guy that would get the numbers from the machine, the social security numbers that would tell them who was either in danger or who is the danger. That was the other rub from person of interest is the number that would come out of the machine that it would spit out would not be able to decipher whether or not it was a victim or perpetrator. So you would watch for the hour to see whether or not it was a good or bad guy on top of everything else. But Harold Finch was your Alfred or maybe even your Oracle if you want to go a little bit deeper into the Batman mythology. There was just so much here. Everything about this show felt like Batman. If you were to take the superhero, the cartoon, the comic away from Batman, you would have person of interest mixed with a surveillance state, mixed with a debate that raged for five seasons about national security and raged and built around survival. I don't really think I need to discuss it too much deeper than that other than to say what I just told you should fascinate you because it was fantastic. It deserved better than CBS gave it, but we got five seasons out of it. I wrote one of my... I would say most favorite tributes to any show when it ended, when Person of Interest ended. And you can search outkick.com and you can find that piece and you can read about it. But I'm telling you, Person of Interest is sitting on Netflix for you right now. It's maybe not a show you're going to binge. Maybe it's one you just watch one episode a week as if you're watching it live. Or maybe you watch one episode a day or whatever it is. But it is a show that demands your attention, that did not get the respect that it deserved. And that holds up. Taraji P. P. Henson was definitely Lieutenant Gordon. There is so much of an analogy to Batman in Person of Interest, it's unbelievable. So watch it. That's generally what I'm telling you here. I don't give you too many pleas, but I am begging you to give Person of Interest a shot. Same thing I told you about the leftovers. And earlier, if you're a Friends from College fan, I said, look, go find Traffic Light, go find Happy Endings, go find Playing House. Shows like that, I think, will speak to you in different but similar ways, and then of all of them, by God, please watch You're the Worst, because you need to see Aya Cash and Kether Donahue and Chris Gear and Desmond Borges and the whole crew there. Alan McLeod being the uh, one that I certainly don't want to leave out as we got back to that discussion. So that's definitely something you need to do. So there's a long list of stuff. I have gotten a lot of correspondence over the last week saying, hey, what would you recommend, especially obscure? I just named some obscure stuff. Go watch that stuff. One thing I wanted to do this week, uh, we had questions about my drama rankings. The first thing I did for OutKick was I ranked the top 10 dramas for me in my lifetime that I got the most out of. I ranked them from 10 to 1, and I wrote long-form pieces on all of them. That was my initial assignment, what I gave myself when I started working for Clay in 2014. And in order, from 10 to 1, it was Chuck, 
Battlestar Galactica, The West Wing, The Shield, Friday Night Lights, The Sopranos, The Wire, Mad Men, Breaking Bad, and Lost. And the question was, how have those changed? Because there have been years, you know, it's been years since then, and in the midst of peak TV, peak TV doesn't necessarily mean the highest quality, it means the most quantity, but through that quantity, we have had a lot of great quality. There have been shows that did not make that list because they either weren't on long enough or hadn't really even started yet. The Leftovers and Fargo, for example. Game of Thrones had not been on long enough to certainly have really been classified yet. Then you had, you know, Person of Interest hadn't ended yet. Justified hadn't ended yet. Then there were shows like Deadwood, which has, you know, I've gone back and rewatched again, and I think it's definitely top 10 now. X-Files and things like that. I'm not ready to release a new rankings rankings yet. I will tell you Chuck is not in the top 10. Shouldn't have been in the top 10 originally. Chuck is a show I absolutely loved. And the benefit of Chuck... Unlike a show like, remember we were talking about Game of Thrones and how they have to fill time because they know when they're ending? That can work and it can not work. For the Americans this year, it didn't work because this was not a great season of the Americans. Game of Thrones, they're having to kind of buy their time a little bit because everything's going to be happening next year and in the you know end of this year. Chuck was a show, Chris Fedak and Josh Schwartz. Josh Schwartz, who you know from the OC, from Riverdale, from Gossip Girl. Those two guys were constantly in fear that their show was going to get canceled. Chuck was always on the verge of being canceled. There were Save Chuck, there were Please Watch Chuck Live, Twitter, Please, things like that. But it ended up getting a decent run, but from week to week you didn't even know if it was going to get axed by NBC. So every single week it felt like Chuck had to end again. So they could not waste time. There were no filler episodes late in the show. It all had to get close. They never knew when they would send three or four episodes in if that was the last three or four they would do. So that last one had to be really, really good, and they had to set it up with the other episodes. So there was no time to waste. And I think that it actually played into Chuck's hands until they, I thought, blew the finale. I couldn't stand that finale. It really, really hurt me because I loved that show. But Chuck's not a top ten show. Chuck's a great show that I really like with a lot of people in it that I really like and creators that I really like. It's not a top 10 show. It's not on the same level as a Deadwood or a Leftovers Now or a Game of Thrones or any number of other shows. Fargo, I don't think it's as good as Person of Interest either. Like there's, that was a goof on my part. So I am willing to admit that. But I'm not willing to release a new list yet. I'm going to have to wait another couple of years. We got to see what else is coming down the pipe. You know, you still got Orange is a New Black out there. There's so many shows like that that are still going that would need to be at least factored in and figure out where they would slot. Orange is the New Black would not be in the top 10, but it might be in the top 20, maybe in the top 25, somewhere in there. And that was just a drama list. Obviously, if you extend it to comedies, that changes the game entirely. But of those top 10, I'm thinking which which ones might not make it. Really, Chuck's the only one. Maybe Battlestar Galactica gets knocked off as well. Actually, it definitely does. But West Wing, S.H.I.E.L.D., Friday Night Lights, The Wire, Sopranos, Mad Men, Breaking Bad, Lost. It's really hard to see how those get moved out. But I think that Game of Thrones moves in and it might slot above a few of those shows I just mentioned. And I think The Leftovers makes that list. I think everything else is probably on the outside looking in, but certainly close. So that's the best answer I can give you today. And before we go quickly on Game of Thrones, I said I would talk about it just a little bit here. We talked about it Monday on OutKick. We'll talk about the next episode that's coming Monday on OutKick. That's kind of how it rolls. I was ready to say they just totally wasted my time again for an hour. But we got two things in an episode that were really good. The last five minutes were great. That does not mean that the episode was saved, but it certainly means it became memorable and they accomplished a lot all of a sudden. Euron, Euron Greyjoy became the new villain of the show. And they needed one, although he's never going to go down as... You know, an A-level villain. They needed somebody to bridge the gap to take a little bit of luster off of Cersei so we have somebody else to hate now that Ramsay Bolton's dead. And that's why Euron Greyjoy needs to exist. Now he's doing bidding for Cersei Lannister, but we need somebody else to hate. Ramsay Bolton, as awful as every scene with him was, they were so necessary and we needed them because it gave us somebody to root against. Yes, we're rooting against Cersei. But even with Cersei, you've got Jamie, and you're not really rooting against Jamie yet. Or maybe ever again. In the same way, Euron Greyjoy is somebody we can all universally say is a villain and watch like we watch VM Varga on Fargo 
or Ramsey Bolton on, on this very show. So I think that that was a good moment for him, and it was a surprising ending because I did not see it coming, and then all of a sudden we got a five, six-minute action scene to end this show. And that was good, and it kind of made sense why we didn't see a whole lot of action leading into it. They kind of just lulled us to sleep and then hit us in the face, and it was effective. Was not my favorite scene of the episode, though, nor was the fantastic sex scene, which we discussed in detail. And yes, she is gorgeous. It was... Lord Varys talking to Daenerys Targaryen and explaining the morality behind how he kind of makes a decision on who to follow when it comes to leadership and how he didn't just kowtow to the Lannisters or Robert Baratheon or to Jon Snow or to anybody else that he made decisions based on who he believed was best. And Daenerys ended up respecting it, even though it looked like it might get contentious at first, it turned for the better. That, to me, might have been one of the most powerful scenes in the last couple of years in Game of Thrones that wasn't just a pure action scene. The dialogue there, and if you kind of sped past that or don't remember it that well, I'm telling you, if if I were you, I would go back and watch that sequence where Daenerys is talking to Lord Varys, because I think that might be one of the most illuminating moments the series has had when it comes to showing the actual level of depth that can exist within the Game of Thrones universe. It's not always about who's on the Iron Throne. It's about why they're on the Iron Throne. And that, I think, speaks to our politics and our world. Who is the President of the United States and why are they the President of the United States? Why do you like them or why do you not like them? It's not just because you're close to them or you know them or whatever it is. Lord Varys backed up Tyrion. He said nice things about Jon Snow to Daenerys. He said that he's following Daenerys because he believes in what Daenerys is doing. And if she stops, then he will no longer do so. And she says, when that happens, speak up. But do not betray me and I will kill, or I will kill you. There's a respect there. I actually like Daenerys more in that moment than I have in a long time. But Lord Varys, to me, was the star of the episode with all due respect to all the other things that happened within it. And I thought it was a B-plus episode. I enjoyed it. I, I've enjoyed both episodes. I just kind of want a little bit more. But because you gave me that kind of dialogue, you also gave me a really good scene with Littlefinger and Jon Snow. But because of that, I can forgive the vomit from the grayscale scene and all of those things. It was just a good episode, and I did think it ended right. It ended on a, wow, was not expecting that to happen for the last five minutes kind of thing. And now the question is to whether or not she's dead. And I would say she's not, because we didn't actually see Euron behead her. She, of course, being Theon's sister. And Theon, whew, just diving in that water, bro. Guess you had to do it. So Game of Thrones, pretty solid this week. Not bad. So looking back on everything we talked about this episode, Friends from College isn't something I would necessarily recommend to you, but if you want, I think you could do a lot worse. I think that's true about Ozark, too. I just think you have to put so much more time into Ozark. And again, a lot of people disagree with me and really like the show, and more power to you. I'm glad you do. Ballers is a show that if you just want entertainment, you don't want to have to think, you can do a hell of a lot worse than Ballers. And obviously the ratings are really solid. I'm begging you to watch Person of Interest. I'm begging you to watch Traffic Light. I'm begging you to watch Happy Endings. And if you like Friends from College, I'm telling you incontrovertibly you need to watch You're the Worst like today or yesterday. Like right freaking now you need to start watching that show. I think that the soundtrack thing is interesting. I love your thoughts. Who would you have score it? And I think it does depend on what kind of film you wanted. But if you had a film that was similar, just another action-sweeping epic, between Ramin Jawadi and Hans Zimmer, who would you go with? And do you think that Michael Giacchino is somebody that should have been included by me in that list? Did I leave somebody else out that you like? All of that is stuff that you can hit me with at jmartclone at gmail.com or on Twitter via DM or otherwise at jmartoutkick. Next week, we'll talk more Game of Thrones. We're going to get into suits in detail next week, which have not really had a chance to do to this point. We will also answer the question that I thought we were going to answer until we got that soundtrack question, which I like better, which is Christopher Nolan and David Fincher potentially being the same person, which I will say is not the case, but I think it's an interesting idea that was raised by someone that asked me a question via email last week that I teased, and then I teased again. 
this week and still have not delivered. So it's just a long-form tease. Right now, we are in the pro wrestling landscape, and we still don't know who's attacked Tyler Breeze and Fandango because they're leading it into SummerSlam, even though they've said that they're going to give that up two or three different times. This is the equivalent of that. I am just stringing you folks along at this point. And I also want your thoughts real quickly. I do want your thoughts on friends from college. I have had many people uh, tweet me about it. A couple of people email me about it. Seems like general consensus is that they do like it. And like I said, it's like a C. It's, it's, It's an average show. I just think there's better things that do the kinds of things that show does. They do it better, and they're out there for you to watch. So that would be my two cents on that situation. Quickly, Nine Inch Nails Ad Violence EP came out last Friday. Very good if you like Nine Inch Nails, which I do. I've seen them more times, I think, than any other band in my lifetime. And hopefully they're going to tour again here. Right now they're just doing all these festivals. I want to just go see Nine Inch Nails. I don't really want to see 1,700 other bands that do 10-minute sets. But Ad Violence is a five-song EP for five ninety nine. You can do a lot worse. I did not talk about Atomic Blonde this week, and I meant to. Atomic Blonde hoped to be a female John Wick. It definitely redefined what it means to fight like a girl. And I know we've seen Lucy and we've seen things like that, but this is the first time where it was just a gritty combat, very, very raw kind of comment. But it was just too much. Film was too long. It was way too visceral. It was blood and guts and all this kind of stuff, and eventually I just had enough. The way I described it on Twitter was that it's basically a chocolate cake that's just so rich that after about three bites you've had enough, but there's still a, a lot of cake left and you actually end up eating it all anyway. It's just too much. And eh, I didn't care about the story very much. I liked watching them interact in the environment, but I was bored by the actual spy stuff. And then they laid on like six twists at the end. One would have been enough. Acting was good. Charlize was great. James McAvoy was great. Uh, Goodman and, and that crew. Toby. They were all very, very good. I just did not love that film. I thought that film's about a, I don't know, it's probably about a C plus somewhere in there, but I can't go higher than that. I can give an A plus to the soundtrack, which I did buy for nine ninety nine, and then people are sending me stuff saying, "Hey, Spotify, man, Apple Music, you can get it all for free." I'm aware that these things exist. I, I promise you, I, I don't live in some kind of bubble where I don't know that streaming services exist for this kind of thing. I just kind of like to own my music in particular, and I don't necessarily like. The quality sometimes of those services is a little sketchy when it comes to the audio quality, but in general, I just want the Atomic Blonde soundtrack to be mine that I can download and uh, make a CD out of if I want to or anything like that. So that's why I bought it. But if you like 80s music, especially some of the songs you haven't heard as much, like Der Commissar or uh, Father Figure from George Michael or something like that, like that stuff's all here. You do have Flock of Seagulls and you've got 99 Luftballons. But you've actually got two versions of it, as a matter of fact. But the music in Atomic Blonde is fantastic. Like, I loved it. I'm sitting there in the theater, like 40 minutes in, I'm just like, God, I pray they release a soundtrack. And, of course, they did, and it's already out, and it's a lot of licensed stuff. There are a couple of new songs, some instrumental stuff, some industrial stuff. But in general, it's an 80s collection that doesn't feature all the songs you would expect. It features the right kind of songs. a great driving album as well. And one more uh, recommendation for you. I've said on Twitter, Jason Isbell and the 400 Units, the Nashville Sound, one of the best albums of the year, because it is, so I tell you to get that. But the best summer album of the year actually came out back in February. And it's a band that honestly might be one of the best bands in the country. Their last two CDs, or their last two albums, are among the best that I've heard during that time span. And this particular album, Hot Thoughts, to me, is the best summer album of the year. If you get on the interstate and drive 75, or if you're on a back road or whatever, and it's you know light out and you're just driving, enjoying the breeze in your hair, Hot Thoughts by Spoon is the album you need to be listening to. I felt that way about Fits in the Tantrum's second album that came out a few years ago. Also, there's, al- there's always an album that speaks to me correctly when it comes to the summer. Spoon speaks to me all year, pretty much all the time, and they always have, but these last two albums in particular. But... Hot Thoughts is a perfect driving album and a perfect summer album. You dance, there's some depth to it, some layers to it, 
good guitar work. The vocals aren't overpowering. You you basically know all the lyrics really, really quickly. You can see playing it loudly around a pool or a barbecue or in a car, wherever it is, it fits. It's also not bad workout music. So I'm telling you, if you have Apple Music or Spotify, you can do it for free. But if not, Spoon Hot Thoughts needs to be part of your music playlist this summer. Not the song, the album. The song's great. Not my favorite song on the album, but a good one. But listen to Hot Thoughts and then give me your thoughts. And then finally, Ryan Adams put out the Prisoner B-Sides and somehow I missed it until last week and I got it. Prisoner B-Sides might actually be better than Prisoner and Prisoner's awfully good. Prisoner B-Sides is like 17 tracks. I think that the guitar work on the B-Sides is better than the actual album. The lyrics and the actual audio quality of Ryan's voice I think are better on the actual album. And I think maybe that's just because of the way it was recorded and the fact that one's B-Sides and one was obviously mastered up to be released mass market on prisoner so there's some music for you haven't done as much of that as i'd like to but of everything right now i'm telling you spoon hot thoughts is what's going to get you through this summer especially these hot days you will love that you will absolutely love it so check that out check person of interest out and yes by god please check you're the worst out season four is coming up in about a month so you got time to binge the first three seasons not that much it's half hour comedy from fx it is absolutely spectacular so you definitely want to watch that we'll be back next week i'm jason martin at jmart outkick on twitter this has been outkick the culture i'm billy eichner see ya it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.